All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Welcome to another episode of Your Brain on Science. You've got me, Elena, today to continue talking about all the things related to psychedelics and addiction. If you missed my last two episodes, I talked about how psychedelics aren't quite like other drugs in uh, the way that their abuse liability works or the their use in general. Uh, and I spoke with Dr. Garcia Ramo from Johns Hopkins about some core concepts of psychedelics to treat addiction. But today, I'm joined by another expert in the field who focuses largely on cannabis, Dr. Peter Grinspoon. He's a primary care physician, educator, and cannabis specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital, an instructor at Harvard Medical School, and a certified health and wellness coach. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Seeing Through the Smoke, a Cannabis Specialist Untangles the Truth About Marijuana, as well as the groundbreaking memoir, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Grinspoon. Thank you so much. My book is actually out, not forthcoming. It came out on 420. <laughs> of all oh, days. nice. Yeah. I Sorry. I took that from your website, I believe. Or... No, no worries. Yeah, the website's <laughs> a little outdated. Time flies, the website's static. So, <laughs> Well, uh, we're super happy to have you on our podcast and uh, talk about your book a little bit and about kind of your personal and professional journey. I think myself and the listeners would love to hear uh, first about how you kind of went from philosophy to Greenpeace to now uh, practicing medicine and researching cannabis. Well, that is a really good question. And, you know, when I read that question, I had to actually, you know, think about it because I think part of it has to do with the family that I grew up in. Um, I grew up in a very intellectually oriented family that was also, they were very much like social justice activists. Uh, my dad was a legendary cannabis specialist at Harvard Medical School, but he also wrote a book in 1979 calling for the medicinal use of psychedelics which um, was not well received by the psychiatric world or by his colleagues because he was about 40 years ahead of his time. It's really ironic. Now, 40 years later, Harvard has a huge center for psychedelic medicine, but they still haven't promoted my dad uh, to full professor despite 11 books and 180 scientific papers because they were Harvard was pissed off at him about his work on cannabis and psychedelics. So um, I, I had very good role models. Uh, you know, in my living room would be uh, just people, you know, act, truthfully passing the peace pipe around and discussing how the ways in which to make the world a better place. I mean, these were really inspiring people. So I went to college and I did my pre-med as quickly as I could the first couple of years because I didn't find the pre-med very interesting at all. It's just memorizing mindless things that there's no reason for us to memorize. I don't know why they train doctors like that. And then I um, studied philosophy because I wanted to study what I thought was the hardest, most challenging and most interesting field. Um, that would help me sort of grow intellectually. Uh, in retrospect, I should have been an English major because that would have been better for my writing. But <laughs> philosophy really teaches you how to think and how to debate and how to argue. And uh, it was a really good, uh, you know, you can't go wrong being a philosophy major. And then I was debating whether or not to go to medical school. I had already done all my requirements. And uh, due to connections, my dad, his best friend, Carl Sagan, a job opened up that I was connected to at Greenpeace. And I was like, sure, 
why not work at Greenpeace for a year and then apply to medical school? But I was actually like going to Chernobyl with a little Geiger counter and like chasing after nuclear submarines and high-speed motorboats. And I was like traveling to Europe every month. And I was like, what is the difference if I'm a doctor start, you know, at age 24 versus a doctor at age 28? So I spent, you know, you only live one life once as far as as far as we know. So I decided to stay at Greenpeace and I just had such an incredible experience, the people I met, and I got to work on all kinds of things and travel all over the world. And honestly, the activism background really helped me in efforts to legalize cannabis and psychedelics, because I just had a lot of experience uh, doing you know, press releases and protests and talking to the press and debating people. Um, I just did a lot of stuff like that. So for example, when I debated Alex Berenson about five years ago at Yale Law School over cannabis, it was a bloodbath. And I wasn't the one covered with blood. He was because I had so much. Well, first of all, he was totally full of it. But second of all, it was like um, I just had a lot of good debate skills. So even if he wasn't serving up softball after softball, you know, I just think a good liberal arts background is a great background for anything. Uh, the philosophy background and, and, and anytime people can get involved with a, a, a nonprofit, a social justice group, I think you learn learn as much, if not more than you learn in school. And then I went back to medical school and I was like an older, more mature, I mean, for me, more mature, more adult um, student. And I, I really knew what I wanted and I knew why I was in school. So I did well in medical school because I wasn't, you know, just there because my parents pushed me or just there because I felt like I had to do something and I didn't really want to do it. I was actually really wanted to be there. And I had like adult, you know, life skills, uh, which really help you taking care of patients. I mean, I think that our medical students are very sheltered. And the more we can get them like real life experience with actual people that are going through difficult things, the better doctors are going to be. That's I think people skills is like 90% of being a good doctor. So I actually think my path of a liberal arts background and then uh, intensive involvement in like a social justice uh, group is the perfect background for medical school. <laughs> so if all doctors did that, we wouldn't have these like narcissistic, clueless doctors that just don't care about the world. We, we wouldn't have that. Yeah, I think the being able to get in in like a grassroots organizational like way and like learning about people outside of your little bubble is just so helpful for anybody um, in general. Like I train med students on Narcan administration and like overdose prevention. And a lot of them, their first years, they've never heard of Narcan. They don't know anything about it. They're, you know, from their their backgrounds that they're from and they just come to med school and it's it's quite interesting to have them participate and hear like how that influenced like their their outlook I guess learning about this so you could go to a field trip uh you know to for example in in Boston we have this one intersection mass and cast which is like the epicenter of uh the opioid crisis very sad like the homeless encampment lots of overdoses I mean you could really take them out and show them things I think that's what makes for really good medical students people who have seen the world and can connect and, and communicate with other people. Yeah, our med school um, is the VCU med school. It's right downtown. So they, they see it. <laughs> get exposed, yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is good because it's, you know, a lot of, you know, some of the nicer med schools are not uh, placed in the community. They're a little outside, so. Yeah, no, if you're sheltered in the suburbs, you're not going to get as, as good an education. My medical school is like as inner city as you can get to the point where like, when they had a, a gang killing, they had to like surround the hospital with police cars so that the gang members wouldn't go in and like keep fighting. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> Interesting. So 
So that's kind of the first part, I guess, of your professional trajectory. Um, so you were also, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, uh, the first physician to kind of openly publish about uh, battling addiction and discussing your own personal experience with that and returning to medicine um, following. So just wondering if you could talk about that memoir and some of your experiences there. Absolutely. Well, I've always been a writer. I've kept a diary since age 15, actually. It's kind of funny to read what you're worried about and what you're not worried about at age 15. I do the pretty same thing. The same, pretty much the same things. Nothing too different, actually, <laughs> surprisingly. But and um, you know, I went through this awful experience of starting a medical school and for the next 10 years getting like uh, this like head over heels addicted to prescription opiates. I had a couple real near misses with overdoses and um, I ended up in a lot of trouble. I was writing bad prescriptions and the pharmacist at CVS, who I'm really grateful to now because she saved my life. At the time, I was really pissed off, of course, but I'm very grateful. Um, she figured out that I was writing bad prescriptions and uh, three weeks later, the state police and the DEA raided my office. I was fingerprinted. I was booked. I was charged with three felony possession, uh, charged uh, three felonies for bad prescriptions. Um, I could have gone to prison. I, I got probation and I was on probation for, for several years. I couldn't even leave the state without the permission of my probation officer. And then getting my medical license back, I, I was drug tested one to three times a week for five years. I calculated that was 20 gallons of urine. And um, it was, took me three and a half years to get it back because I had a slip after slip. It's not an easy thing to get over an opiate addiction. But then I finally figured it out. And then, then about uh, five years into recovery, I was, or eight years into recovery, I was hired by the Massachusetts Physician Health Service, um, which is part of the Massachusetts Medical Society. They're the group that helps doctors who are struggling with addiction, alcoholism, uh, mental health problems. Uh, and they sat me at the same table, just on the other side of the table that I'd sat in eight years earlier. And I was there helping other doctors that were just coming in off the streets. So I felt like I understood this from both sides, the whole notion of physician addiction, healthcare provider addiction, and the way in which we punish people and don't encourage them to get treatment. If someone is struggling, the medical or the nursing boards just take away their license and ask questions later. And that encourages people to not get help. And I thought the whole system was uh, inhumane, cruel, ineffective, and completely uh, not talked about. It's such a taboo subject. The expectations for physicians are that we're these like effective robots that don't even get colds and that are there every day when you need us. And the reality is that physicians are dropping like flies and are quitting or burning out or quietly quitting. So I thought, why not take this taboo subject of physicians and addiction? And then the broader subject of like physician health and like why is our suicide rate higher than in any other profession? I thought I'd write a memoir about it and try to help other people learn and grow from my experience. And, uh, you know, there's been no looking back since then. I've got mostly uh, extremely good feedback. Uh, a couple people didn't love uh, some of the stuff I said um, in the memoir, but the whole point of a memoir is that you say stuff and then you grow and change. And if you read the whole memoir, it all makes sense. And um, most people have been incredibly... Uh, supportive. You know, I had one one patient um, who said, uh, you know, I didn't know when I read about your memoir if I wanted you to um, be my doctor anymore because you're an opiate addict, you're a druggie. You know, she's like 80 years old. And then she said, but then I realized my my son is dead from a heroin overdose. My, my daughter is in prison from dealing opiates. I'm stuck taking my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old 
grandkids taking care of them and taking them to stalker matches because they have no parents. Their parents were wiped out completely. All my kids were wiped out by the opioid epidemic. So then she said, I can't think of anybody that would probably be a more appropriate doctor for you, for me than you, because you'd understand what I'm going through. So I, I just thought that kind of response was so heartwarming. I mean, of course, there could have been the people that just ditched me that I never heard from, but what I heard was very good feedback. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think what you just said about um, having, being open to your, to your patients, I feel like builds a better rapport. You, they feel like they're better listened to. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with when they're going to get medical care is they feel like they're not listened to a lot or um, that they don't relate to their doctor and stuff. So I think that's a good point. So there's a misconception that recovery equals not taking drugs, sort of the Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just about like abstinence. Mm -hmm. But recovery is about so much more. It's about finding a way to be happy and contented and connected to people so that there isn't room for the drugs or the alcohol to come back in. It's about learning how to be humble, how to connect, how to talk to people, how to listen to people, how to be mindful. It's about so much more. And I think that those things that uh, enable people in general uh, to successfully recover from any kind of addiction are exactly those um, those characteristics you'd want in a doctor, someone who's humble, who isn't judging you, who listens, who connects. So I think, you know, again, I wouldn't put get addicted to opiates, completely screw up everything in your life and then get unaddicted on the medical school curriculum because it's very impractical. It, it does really help you relate to people who are suffering from addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so my stepdad is an ER doctor and my mom uh, was an ER nurse for a lot of years. And so a lot of the stuff we've, I've seen them come home and we've talked about just their experiences working in that situation and how people are treated when they come into the ER, when they have overdose or addiction or something like that. So do you have any um, thoughts on like that and how the stigma maybe- is terrible. The stigma is killing people. I mean, people use drugs. People have used drugs in every single society. It's completely nuts how in our society we pick the good drugs and you're in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or Narcotics Anonymous meeting, everybody's chain smoking cigarettes and guzzling caffeine. And we talk about the bad drugs, the opiates, the amphetamines, all the, all the other drugs if you're a 12-stepper. And again, I have plenty of friends that are doing well in 12 steps, so I'm not here to bash on the 12 steps, but I do think they could be a little bit um, more flexible. And um, the fact is, it is really arbitrary which which drugs are the good drugs and which are the bad drugs. I prescribe oxycodone all the time and other opiates to help people with pain. And heroin's virtually the same thing chemically. And you go to prison for possessing heroin. It makes no sense. Psilocybin is schedule one, high abuse liability, no medical utility. Neither of those is true about magic mushrooms. I mean, there's some abuse liability and there's plenty of, and the same with cannabis. So that's still schedule one in the Controlled Substance Act. So it makes no sense. And furthermore, the stigma is literally killing people. It makes it so that people can't talk to their doctors. They can't open up. They can't ask for help. They can't admit to a friend that they're having trouble because they feel that people will judge them. I mean, I, and, and also their doctors don't treat them as well. They don't get pain medications uh, if they have a, the word addiction on their problem list, uh, which is really neurotic and, and unbelievable. I mean, you don't want to trigger an addiction, but at the same time, it's inhumane not to treat someone's chronic pain. And the best way to get someone who's addicted to relapse is to not treat their chronic pain because they will go out and treat it themselves and buy something on the street and it'll be contaminated with fentanyl. They're going to overdose. You just don't treat people like that. 
I once had such bad sciatica that I couldn't walk more than a block. And I like limped into the local ER and the, the doctor, the nurse said to me, you're just seeking opiates. You're not really in pain. And I couldn't believe it. I was astounded. Now, needless to say, that didn't end particularly well for them, given that I was on staff at the sister hospital that was above it at Harvard. It just didn't end particularly well for them. But I didn't want that sort of stig the stigmatizing derogatory attitude to like, um, to be used on other people. So I was very careful to report them, but stigma kills and being open and honest is what enables us to get help. So uh, I just think these things are really, really important. Yeah, very well said. I can feel the passion coming through <laughs> the screen. Um, so that kind of leads me into talking about, you know, advocacy for like science communication and medical literacy and, you know, supporting drug reform. Um, and I've seen on Twitter um, and other written stuff by you discussion about how sometimes we can like passively further the drug war and like further the stigma through our research and the medicine the way we're talking about stuff so can you kind of give a couple examples and discuss that absolutely though elena that was technically about six questions so if i miss right. any let me know. no problem but if i miss any of them let me know um i mean uh you know it's very complicated uh, the u.s government lied for so long about cannabis um that people don't believe it and once you lose credibility, it's really hard to gain it back, which is for the worst example of this is with the D.A.R.E. program, when they lied to kids about cannabis and the kids like threw away the whole message and drug use actually went up. It's like lying to teenagers never works. Like literally good luck getting your credibility back with a teenager. And I have patients say to me, why should I get a COVID vaccine? The government lied about cannabis. And I'm like, come on, the COVID vaccine will save your life. That was like during the drug war, which is still sort of going on, but we're winding it down and different people, you know, it's, it's just a workaround. And I just think that when people misrepresent science, like all these uh, anti-vaxxers drive doctors nuts. It's like, why is a tetanus shot okay, but all of a sudden a COVID vaccine is like deadly and <laughs> you're using horse dewormer ivermectin to treat your COVID. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult for physicians with all this scientific nonsense. Now, some of it was done deliberately. A lot of it's done deliberately. You look at uh, climate change. The whole climate denial movement was fabricated. There aren't two sides to the story about climate change, but they put so much money in. Now they create this false both siderism, and then people just don't know what to believe. And it's really confusing and really destructive. Now, due to 50 years of this uh, propaganda and nonsense on the war on drugs, where they've hyped and exaggerated virtually all the harms, not just on cannabis, but on psychedelics, and, and the, they dehumanize people that use drugs. Remember the whole crack baby thing? Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as a crack baby. Crack doesn't affect pregnancy. There are kids with fetal alcohol syndrome. Alcohol is very dangerous, but they flat out fabricated these things to control uh, certain segments of the population, usually segments with black or brown skin. And it's been horrible. And, you know, as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, science is true, whether you believe it or not. And as Carl Sagan says, uh, science is ultimately self-correcting. But the problem is, it's very hard to kind of not to, you know, use the name of my book or anything, but to see through the smoke about these things. Because, for example, with cannabis, there are two concurrent narratives going on. I go through that in every single chapter. I talk about driving. What do the anti-people say? What do the pro-people say? And what is the truth? I talk about teen, teen use. I talk about cognition. I talk about pregnancy. I talk about breastfeeding. I talk about does it help with cancer pain or does it help, does it help cure cancer? Does it help with autism? I go through all the harms, all the benefits. How addictive is it? And I talk about the latest science. But again, what's really confusing is that with cannabis, and with all these other subjects, 
you could paint whatever narrative you want because there's so many negative studies uh, from the drug war. Um, and you talk about how we have been like supporting it sort of passively with research. Uh, cannabis is a perfect example. I mean, sort of psychedelics is a perfect example too, how my dad was shunned and not promoted for writing a book in 1979 saying that we could, should use psychedelics and psychiatry and study them more. Like that's what 75% of psychiatrists agree with now, but in 1979, he was sort of persecuted for it. So mm -hmm. it's uh, there are a lot of ways in which if you're saying something out of the mainstream consensus, you get very negative feedback very quickly. And then cannabis is even worse because uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, they're going to change the name because the word abuse is sort of stigmatized language for addiction. So but NIDA uh, funds like the US government funds 80 to 90% of the worldwide drug research. And for the last half century, and this is changing just a little bit, but I detailed this in great extent in my book, they have not funded any studies or researchers looking into the benefits of cannabis. They've just funded research into the harms of cannabis. To get any funding for cannabis, you had a lower motivation, sperm count, IQ. You had to prove something bad. If you wanted to prove, hey, we're lowering alcohol use, nope, nobody got funded. So that really distorts science if you have a preconceived notion that cannabis is bad and all the funding is, hey, how can we prove that this is bad to support the drug war, as opposed to neutrally stepping back and saying, is cannabis good or bad? Does it have a good or bad effect on pain? Does it have a good or bad effect on this and that? So it's been incredibly biased what we've paid for and how it's been presented. Again, like uh, my dad wrote a book, uh, Marijuana Reconsidered on Cannabis in 1971, that was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review in, in like most glowing terms whatsoever. And he proved in that book that in 1968, the publication Playboy, which used to have really, really good journalism, had much, much more accurate information about cannabis than the journal of the American Medical Association. It was really embarrassing uh, for the American Medical Association, uh, who are still pumping out nonsense every two minutes about cannabis. But um, we really, there are a lot of ways, active, passive, subtle, over that the drug war, it, it just is like taken root. It's a cash cow. The rehab industry, they love getting all these referrals from the courts. You know, the kid comes in with his parents and the judge is like, your child was caught with cannabis, your teenager. Would you rather they go to juvie or to rehab? The parents are of course like, we'll take rehab. So the rehabs have been pumping out a lot of nonsense too. They're just follow the money. I mean, there's just so many commercial interests that are invested, of course, their commercial interests invested in legalization, but there's so many commercial interests invested in prohibition, especially law enforcement and the rehab industry, which is like a $40 billion, which I don't even think rehab works having been to rehab. I don't think it does anything good for anybody, but that's another conversation. So to get back to your question, there are a lot of different ways in which we are still furthering and perpetuating the drug war and creating this stigma, which is just killing people. Yeah, I really have seen the what you're talking about with like the NIDA funding um, as a young investigator right now and <laughs> working and getting my PhD in psychedelics of all things. So it's it's quite interesting. When I first um, started my academic journey and I told people what I wanted to do, everyone was like, why you want to study the positive effects of psychedelics? Like, are you a drug addict? And I was like, who cares if I was? No, but like, who cares, you know? And then now um, NIDA just funded my F31, which is great, but they're also starting to call for, hey, we made a mistake. Maybe we should start looking at these positive effects of psychedelics, but that's still 
a very minuscule 0.01%. And that's after the societal winds have changed. Now, these courageous psychiatrists were all against it when my dad was calling for it. But now that uh, the herd mentality is psychedelics are interesting Mm -hmm. and reasonably safe and potentially therapeutic, now 75% of the psychiatrists support it. So NIDA is changing too. And a lot of these cannabis people are changing as well. A lot of them change just to be like negative of the consensus opinion. So they still get in the newspapers. You know, if you hold to your guns, you become outdated, but you wonder how sincere a lot of people, these people are, uh, Mm -hmm. who have recently changed their tunes. These like old drug warriors that have been just awful on the issues. In the last couple of years, they changed their tune and they're like, hey, look at this. Maybe psychedelics are helpful. And it's sort of like, where have you been all along? I mean, people can grow and change. And it's always nice to see people grow and change, but there's just, you can't help but feel there's a certain amount of opportunism involved. Oh yeah, especially with all the industry opportunities with cannabis and psychedelics right now and investments. It's like interesting to follow along for sure. Um, I had a thought and I lost it. Uh, <laughs> Probably because I was talking so much. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I I had like two things. That was one of them and then I lost the other one, but it's fine. If it'll come back, I'll, I'll ask it. That's what happens when you ask six questions at once. <laughs> I know, you know. I'm joking. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Well, I've got another six question um, thing for you. So. Um, so we mentioned a little bit about AA and abstinence kind of based recovery. So I read um, the piece you did on being Cali sober and that concept. And so for our listeners, um, just real quick, that is Cali sober is something different from abstinence based recovery, um, where the use of potentially less harmful substances is not considered breaking sobriety. Um, so my question for you, Dr. Grinspoon, is what are some pros and cons of abstinence versus this Cali sober recovery kind of? Well, abstinence has no scientific basis behind it. The only reason people practice, no, there's nothing wrong with abstinence. And if someone's in recovery and they're abstinence, you know, more power to them. I'm perfectly supportive of that. But abstinence comes from the uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was written in 1939. And we've learned so much about addiction, about the brain, about the pathways, about all the different drugs. And there's really absolutely no evidence whatsoever that abstinence is necessary or sufficient for one's recovery. Again, if it's easier for you, and if you want to be abstinent, that's fine. But, you know, Anthony Bourdain was addicted to cocaine and uh, heroin in his early 20s during a very troubled time of his life. And then later in life, happier, in recovery, doing well. He had like a beer on his show in his 50s. And in another show, he had like smoked a joint with someone and the AA people went berserk. They went nuts. Like, how can he have a drink? You know, one is too many, never is enough. Abstinence for, and I'm, I looked into it back then and I wrote a piece that got picked up by a lot of different other uh, pieces because I, I discovered there was no evidence in the scientific literature whatsoever for abstinence. It's literally just because we follow AA because they're in NA narcotics and not because there hasn't been anything else. And in reality, um, you could notice that the abstinence was getting into trouble when people started using Suboxone or buprenorphine and methadone. These are medications that you use to replace the opiates. People tend to do really well on them. They have been shown to occasion a 50 to 80% reduction in overdose and deaths. They're great medications. In my hospital, we view giving someone Suboxone 
the same as we've used to giving someone with diabetes insulin. It's just a medicine that helps them with the disease. So they do better. But at AA meetings and at NA meetings, people were given such crap. I saw this. It was like, you're not really in recovery if you're on Suboxone or Methadone. That's just substituting one drug for another. And that's when I started realizing uh, that these the dogmatism of 12 steps, the dogmaticism is so dangerous and so harmful. And it, if we're going to save lives and help people recover from this addiction epidemic that we have, we need a big tent. We need to be open to people and meet them where they are so that they're not afraid to come. They're not afraid to be shamed. And, you know, um, Suboxone and, and Methadone and a lot of other medications are critical to our evolving care of uh, people who have addiction. And now psychedelics come in, like some of the data, still preliminary data, absolutely astounding on how helpful psychedelics are. So, um, you know, I had a friend who went to Costa Rica and did um, began because she wanted to stop drinking and she didn't have a drink for six months. She didn't have a cigarette for six months, which wasn't even one of her goals. I mean, these things have real amazing potential. Interestingly, after six months, the cigarettes and the drinking came back. So it's not like a permanent cure, but you do, do gain insight and wisdom and, and being able to quit for six months is pretty amazing if you're in the midst of addiction. And then with cannabis, they've fluffed up how many people get addicted to cannabis. Some people get addicted to cannabis. I actually treat cannabis addiction and I think I'm good at treating it because I know the cannabis does things for people like helps with their anxiety or their pain or their insomnia. Whereas many of the psychiatrists just think it's the satanic weed. They don't even, people are afraid to even talk to their psychiatrists about cannabis. I have so mm -hmm. many patients that are like, I wanted to talk to my psychiatrist, but I brought it up and he looked angry and like he was upset. So I never mentioned it again. And, you know, it's really amazing how many people are, first of all, they had this, first of all, they fluff up the rates of cannabis addiction by the definition, you only need two of 11 criteria. And of the 11 criteria includes tolerance, withdrawal, cravings. Now, we don't include tolerance and withdrawal or cravings for that matter, when we prescribe opiates or when we prescribe benzodiazepines, your Valium, your Lorazepam, because everybody who takes opiates medicinally has tolerance and withdrawal. Mm. And what would be the point of pathologizing them and giving them a diagnosis of addiction? We just talked about how people treat you poorly. They don't give you pain medication if you have a diagnosis of addiction. You actually hurt them. And then, so why on earth do we include tolerance and withdrawal and cravings and a bunch of other nonsense in the definition of cannabis use disorder or cannabis addiction. So they say that nine to 33% of adults who use cannabis get addicted to it. It's hard to say that with a straight face. I think it's more like two to 5%. And uh, you know, people with an addiction to cannabis need to be treated with empathy, compassion, and skill like any other addiction, but it's not nine to 33%. Furthermore, an addiction to cannabis is not, I mean, it, it can be very devastating. I'm not trying to minimize it, but when I was at NA meetings, people were like breaking bones or like robbing pharmacies to get um, to get opiates. People don't break bones to get cannabis. The addiction is not that soul destroying as from personal experience, I could talk about an opiate addiction being. And then as for cannabis and recovery, it was always portrayed as a gateway to addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was just literally a nothing burger of US drug policy. It's just because it's associated. People take use tobacco, then alcohol, then many of them use cannabis because it's a commonly used drug. And then some of them go on to get addicted to opiates and they're like, aha, they're associated. They must be causally related. But we know that association isn't causation. I mean, every single person that goes on to develop an opiate addiction drinks milk as a child. Opiate addiction and milk drinking are 
associated. But we're not arresting these kids with their like, you know, milk boxes because they're gonna, you know, be dealing and causing homicides with fentanyl 10 years later. It, there's just a statistical association. There's no uh, there's no causal relationship. And it's the same thing with cannabis. It literally was never, we know what causes addiction, which is childhood trauma, untreated anxiety, untreated depressive symptoms, uh, miserable life circumstances, uh, abusive relationships, and genetics. That's what causes addiction. And uh, you know, your brain chemistry and sometimes bad luck. People self-treat, they feel better self-treating, then they become dependent on the drugs, and it, then you have a second problem. Then you have a third problem because of the war on drugs, and you get entangled with law enforcement, and that never turns out well either. That doesn't help anything. And law enforcement are literally like the last people that need to be involved in addiction. But so the reality is cannabis isn't a gateway into addiction to other drugs. As early as 1999, the Institute of Medicine, which is part of the US government, which were not flower children with respect to cannabis, even they said in 1999 that there's no evidence for the gateway theory. But in fact, ironically, people are using the word gateway to describe getting off of other drugs, getting off of opiates, getting off of benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, getting off of alcohol. And I've seen this so much, both in my clinical practice, I've had a lot of success clinically, and I've seen it um, in the recovery community as well with my interactions with the recovery community. Now, you don't want to use cannabis instead of suboxone, methadone, buprenorphine, because you just don't have the data that there's a 50 to 80% reduction in overdose deaths. But as an adjunct, cannabis can help with pain, with insomnia, with anxiety, with withdrawal symptoms. And there's little to no evidence that people do worse when they're using cannabis as an adjunct to help their recovery. If anything, they, they tend to do a lot better. We just, they don't speak about it because it's so stigmatized, but I've had a lot of success. So Cali Sober is people saying for California Sober, I don't love the name, but it's basically saying we don't buy the narrow definition of AA that recovery is abstinence. And we don't buy all the nonsense of the last 50 years about cannabis and about psychedelics. And we're perfectly happy to be in recovery using cannabis as a medicine or using psychedelics to help us recover. So that is Kelly Sober in a nutshell. Yeah. And that led me to a couple of different thoughts. The first thought being um, when he's talked about gateway, the gateway drug theory quotes, um, it reminded me of what I was thinking about with psychedelics is that a lot of these earlier commentaries or these things that are deemed facts of the drug war are based in no reality. Like the, the LSD will melt your brain or stays in your spinal cord. Or if you do a psychedelic three times, you're clinically insane. Like none of that's real. And that is kind of- It's amazing. I mean, that's the climate when my dad published his book, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, and he was hounded for it. But it, it just like, it, it's really amazing. You, I read a lot about this in my book, Seeing Through the Smoke. Like you have to think for yourself on these issues. And we also have to have a lot of humility and sort of start from scratch because much of what we've all been taught just isn't true about all these drugs. Our drug policy has not been based on science and on goodwill. It's been based on trying to criminalize people, mostly with black and brown skin. So I just think we sort of need to start from scratch with our definitions of cannabis addiction, with our thinking about what are the good drugs and what are the bad drugs. And like with the whole presupposition that using drugs is bad, like people are allowed to use drugs as long as they're not harming other people, uh, you know, not driving impaired, not, I mean, it's like people have always used drugs and this is very hypocritical how like, you know, people like sip on their martinis and criticize people for using other drugs. I, it, we need to start from scratch. Right. And I was also thinking about how, you know, you're talking about you have to meet 
two out of 11 criteria and the different criteria for different substance use disorders, a lot of them, they list euphoria as a negative criteria. Oh, euphoria. And I, I remember when I was um, give, I was went to a presentation on psychedelics with a lab um, and they were new to studying them and they asked me to come to like provide commentary and stuff. And I remember they listed euphoria as a positive, like that's part of psychedelics. And then um, someone in there was like, well, isn't that negative? Because that's drugs of abuse produce euphoria. And I was like, why is euphoria a bad thing? Why can't people feel good by using drugs as long as it's not problematic, right? Right. And it only becomes problematic if their lives are so painful that they need the euphoria to get by. And then the drugs are more a symptom of the problem than the cause of the problem anyway. So I agree with you completely. Right. Um, so then this kind of leads me into talking a little bit about the concept of drug exceptionalism. So um, I see this come up a lot when talking about like the Cali sober thing and how um, maybe sometimes when we use that phrase or say that it's okay to like use psychedelics or cannabis that it's better than someone who's using opioids or stimulants. And so I just want to know your thoughts on like that kind of backlash to that. That's a complicated question. There's definitely psychedelic exceptionalism, which is yes. really funny. The psychiatrists, you know, all drugs are bad and let's criticize them, except we're all support psychedelics. And you wonder why that is. I mean, in my most cynical, I wrote about seven different reasons in my book why that might be the case. Cannabis paved the way for psychedelics. You know, they view psychedelics as a cure and cannabis is more like a treat symptoms. Um, you know, um, black drug, white drug, psychedelics are, there's a lot of different reasons, but in my cynical moments, I wonder if it comes down to the Upton Sinclair quote, where it's difficult to convince a man of something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. And the psychiatrists don't like people self-treating with cannabis for their anxiety, their insomnia, their depression, because it, then they don't have to pay $500 an hour to see a psychiatrist. Again, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what I think in my most cynical moments, which is not this exact moment. Mm -hmm. But I worry about that. Uh, there definitely is psychedelic exceptionalism, especially uh, from my perspective, when my dad got persecuted for writing a book that right now would be like mainstream. Uh, but I think with cannabis, there's also some exceptionalism as well. I mean, you could make the argument, and I'm sort of thinking out loud here, that like uh, psychedelics have medical use. Uh, it's fine with me if people use them recreationally as long as they're safe. Cannabis has medical use. It's fine for me if people use it uh, recreationally, as long as they're safe and reasonable and responsible about it, it should be legal. Again, law enforcement is a much greater harm than any of the any of these drugs uh, that we're using. But you know, opiates are complicated. They have a medical use, but we do lose 100,000 people a year to them. But then you could say alcohol, uh, we lose 100,000 people a year to it. And it's very hypocritical that a drug, alcohol, is advertised. It's not just available, but advertised everywhere. And um, the opiates are vilified, and they killed the same number of people. So I think there is a lot of exceptionalism. A lot of it goes back to the like internalized nonsense from the drug war and the fact that we've been lied about, uh, crack babies. Like We've been lied about like about all these drugs like for 50 years. And then a lot of it goes to like low scientific literacy in the community. People don't feel like they could just pick up a study and say, what does the study actually say? There's what the press release says. Then there's what the researchers are trying to emphasize. And then, but what does the study actually show? And usually buried in the study, it's not what either the researchers say, and it's definitely not what the, the media has to say. So I think that there is exceptionalism. I think that all drugs were stigmatized and vilified. And then psychedelics are now coming out of that. 
And now cannabis is coming out of that. So in a sense, that's why there's exceptionalism because these groups have proven their like medicinal and societal value. But, um, you know, and it's hard to come up with a good medicinal use for methamphetamine, but at the same time, we shouldn't be uh, vilifying people, criminalizing people uh, for this, you know, and again, I truly believe if people want to take drugs, they should be allowed to take drugs. I'm personally for legalizing all drugs, taxing them, having the government dispense them. It shouldn't be a free for all like we have in the cannabis dispensaries, though cannabis has such low harm, you can have that with the cannabis dispensaries. But I really think that a lot of this harm comes when law enforcement gets involved. But yes, there is exceptionalism for cannabis and psychedelics. And I think part of that's how the image of psychedelics and the image of cannabis have like broken out from the general, like all drugs are evil. And if you use them, you're a loser type message mm -hmm. of the war on drugs. Yeah. Although exceptionalism kind of sucks <laughs> to an extent, I think it is helping destigmatize drug use in general. So it has its pros and cons for sure. Right. I mean, I, again, would the psychedelics have come so easily if the cannabis, you know, I always wondered, the psychiatrists were always like, cannabis is illegal, you can't use it. And then with psychedelics, it's like, hey, man, let's do some shrooms. Who cares about the man? The law is not what's moral. Let's go ahead and do that. There's such a double standard. So I think exceptionalism is the right word. But um, but yeah. you're right. Uh, to, this, to the extent that certain drugs are treated preferentially with exceptionalism, the people using other drugs are sort of left behind with all the nonsense and vilification. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to stick on cannabis right now and you can comment on psychedelics um, as well if you feel like you want to. Um, but just generally speaking, are there people that should or shouldn't seek out like cannabis or psychedelics for a treatment for a substance use disorder? Definitely. The people who need to avoid cannabis are teenagers. Uh, there's evidence is not like definitive because a lot of it's these associational studies where they didn't factor in like poverty, pregnancy, excuse me, poverty, uh, smoking or other drugs, you know, and they show that kids who use cannabis uh, had cognitive problems, but a lot of these studies were nonsense, but some of them were concerning enough that I certainly don't recommend it for a kid under 18, unless of course they're like my brother Danny was dying of cancer. It really helped him with cannabis really helped him or unless they have something like autism. The, the data for autism is increasingly interesting every year. And these same psychiatrists are like, how can you give CBD with a little bit of THC to kids? Well, first of all, CBD is an FDA approved medication in a Pelodex for childhood epilepsy. And then these poor kids on autism are on Adderall, Thorazine, Haldol, Lorazepam. I don't get how the psychiatrist can argue that a little bit of THC is more dangerous than these heavy duty psychostimulants, sedatives and neuroleptics. So I think there's just, again, this ingrained uh, sort of negative exceptionalism about cannabis. But so teenagers shouldn't use it. I don't think it's been shown to be safe during pregnancy or breastfeeding. Now, nothing has really been shown to be safe during pregnancy or breastfeeding. I'm very cautious as a primary care doctor with everything. On the one hand, so I don't recommend that people use cannabis during pregnancy or breastfeeding, except under very extreme circumstances, like if you have hyperemesis, you're barfing all the time, you're in the hospital, you're on intravenous held on lorazepam. Again, it's an uphill argument to like argue that like a puff of pot would be worse for you than, than all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is if you're pregnant and you have severe pain, you have to take something. What are you gonna take? Opiates aren't safe, non-steroidals aren't safe. So again, the question with cannabis is not, is it safe or dangerous, but is it less toxic than the alternatives? That's what a good doctor asks. But generally I don't advise it in pregnancy or breastfeeding. And then the main category or important category is people with 
either a personal history or family history of psychosis. Cannabis can destabilize these individuals. It can aggravate a psychosis. So can psychedelics, by the way. It can mm -hmm. aggravate a psychosis in people who are predisposed to it, or it could um, reactivate it in someone who's in recovery from it. So people with psycho bipolar, schizophrenia, people with a history of drug-induced psychosis have to be, or if you're like cousin or your cousin or your brother has bipolar, you have to be very careful with cannabis and psychedelics because you're more likely to have a trigger sort of a psychotic episode, which is a really, really big deal. So aside from that, um, it's hard to argue that cannabis is more dangerous than whatever drug you'd be transitioning from if you're seeking out recovery from addiction. So I'm all in favor of it. And a lot of those uh, qualifications would also pertain to uh, many other drugs that we use. It's not just cannabis. Yeah, for sure. Um, I always find it interesting the um, high dose cannabis mimicking or producing those like drug induced psychosis symptoms. Um, it's a phenomenon I feel like needs to be studied a lot more with cannabis and with psychedelics because we always focus on like just either observational things or we focus like very highly neuroscience things. But I, I think a lot of the, the older evidence for stuff like that hasn't been redone in a modern age with. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I talk a lot about this in my book. There's the, I forget what it's called, the panis or something, the psych psychosis scale. And they're like anxiety, you know, they literally describe all the things that cannabis does for you, like anxiety, like not following commands, like disoriented. And, you know, researchers like this one researcher, Yale, I won't use any names, would inject people with huge doses of THC, intravenous THC. Like the only time I've heard of intravenous THC is either on a poster for the movie Reefer Madness or this one guy at Yale injecting people with huge doses of THC. Then he'd put them in this very cold, disorienting clinical room. Then he'd be like, aha, they're anxious, they're disoriented, they're not following instructions, cannabis causes psychosis. It's like, that is not psychosis. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. They need to actually have a psychosis scale that wasn't designed to like entrap cannabis patients and to really help ferret out what are the negative interactions versus what's having just had THC injected in you and being put in a weird room and not be having having a little trouble like getting your bearings. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's, again, it goes back to the last half century of research into cannabis and, and, and mostly into psychedelics until the last 10 years or so have been really oriented towards finding harms. They haven't been objectively like, is this harmful or beneficial? It's like, we're trying to wage a war on drugs. Let's prove a harm. What harm should we prove? And here's how we're going to go about it. And that's not how you do science. Mm -hmm. and, and finally, that's how they lost a lot of credibility. Um, you know, the, the, the cannabis, the official cannabis, you know, um, I guess the psychiatrists who have vilified it so much. I, I don't, it's not just psychiatrists, a lot of researchers, people don't talk to them and they don't communicate with them. And it's really a tragedy. And I think that doctors have to do a really good job of making people feel comfortable talking about their drug use or like people just won't tell them and they're going to end up getting into trouble. Definitely. So what are some of the exciting findings in the last few years in regards to cannabis use generally or for the treatment of substance use disorders? Well, I've been following CBD and addiction pretty closely, and I have a feeling that CBD is going to be really uh, an integral um, medicine to our, to our substance um, use disorder treatment. It's, there's a lot of animal studies and there's some interesting human studies with uh, tobacco and with opiates and with, with cannabis could help with cannabis use disorder. Now, 
I think CBD is not quite ready for showtime yet, but I think that's going to be something really, really interesting to follow. And the second really interesting thing that I want to point out is the way in which cannabis helps older people, such as older Americans. Uh, as you get older, you, um, you accumulate diagnoses, symptoms, and medications. And I have these people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s that are on like 20 different medications. And the beauty about cannabis is it can do four or five things at once. If you prescribe it for a fibromyalgia patient, it could help with the pain. It could help with the perception of the pain, the anxiety, the insomnia. You look at all the polls, the health-related quality of life goes up. And there are plenty of good studies from Israel that using cannabis in, the, in order uh, patients is, is safe. It's not harmless, but it's often much safer than the ambience, the opiates, the non-steroidals. I mean, just non-steroidals, if they don't give you a heart attack, they kill 10,000 people a year from a heart attack, your ibuprofen, your Advil, your Naperson, your Aleve, your Diclofenac, they cause ulcers, gastritis. And I see so many people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s whose kidneys are slowly dying from taking that ibuprofen after ibuprofen after ibuprofen. And I think for people in general, but particularly for older patients, cannabis can be a much safer alternative and a way to cut down on all the drugs, which is very confusing, expensive, and dangerous. If you're on like 20 different medications, cannabis can help with the anxiety, the insomnia, um, the chronic pain. And it really, we've been seeing people dropping drugs left and right. So I think the second thing I'd mention is that I think the widespread enthusiasm, the adapt, the adopting cannabis, it, go, it doubles every couple of years, the use in the older Americans and the way it's been beneficial to improve quality of life and safety has been really astounding. So uh, it would be even more astounding if more doctors were involved helping counsel patients. Unfortunately, doctors tend to know very, very little about cannabis. I joke that if people read my book, Seeing Through the Smoke, they know more about cannabis than 99% of doctors um, worldwide and 99.9% .9 of doctors in this country. They only teach the endocannabinoid system, the whole system of neurotransmitters and receptors by which cannabis and many other things work in 13% of medical schools. In a recent poll, something like 9% of medical students said they'd been taught anything about medical marijuana. So all of this benefit with like substituting cannabis for other more deadly drugs, whether you're in recovery from addiction or whether you're older American, just trying not to be drugged to death on 20 different pharmaceuticals is happening organically with patients doing this themselves. Imagine how much harm reduction benefit we could do if we had doctors knew about cannabis, made patients feel comfortable talking about it, and were actually able to make helpful suggestions like start with CBD, add a little THC, use the tincture under your tongue, start with a drop or two, go up slowly. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just, I didn't know that it was so low that they didn't teach that really. Yeah, it's just a hangover from the war on drugs, but it's nuts. Even if, first of all, even if you think cannabis is like the satanic weed, like a lot of psychiatrists do, then you should understand the endocannabinoid system so you understand why it's the satanic weed, why it's bad for you. And second of all, the endocannabinoid system controls it's a very ancient system. It's like 500 million years old. It far predates human use of cannabis. It's cannabis bootstraps onto it to work its effect. But the endocannabinoid system controls like memory, learning, reproduction, temperature, feeding, mm -hmm. uh, processing of traumatic memories. It's like, it's like the traffic control system for all of the other neurotransmitter systems. So that's a pretty big hangover from the war on drugs that we're not teaching our doctors and nurses the endocannabinoid system. And that needs to change yesterday because we're really putting them at a disadvantage. Yeah. Wow. 
That's a great point. Um, I guess that leaves me with my final question to you today. Um, so what can we do better as physicians, scientists, educators to increase this medical literacy and increase patient safety and inclusivity when it comes to treating with cannabis or treating with psychedelics? Well, the first thing is humility. We need to be open to learning new things, to be open to the possibility that we've been wrong about things and to be open to doing things differently. As a primary care doctor, the three most important words that I know are, I don't know. I, you just get in trouble if you bluff, but as long as somebody knows the answer. And I think humility just makes us better doctors, better nurses, better researchers. Um, the second thing is just to increase scientific literacy. I, that's not an easy thing to do, but like these studies, you have to look at the studies. You can't just look at the headlines. Uh, there's something called, well, there, first of all, there's confirmation bias, which is we pay attention to the things we that support our, our previously established beliefs. And I think that really uh, makes it so that people who are pro-cannabis don't learn about the harms. And if you're pro-cannabis and you're a cannabis user, of course you want to know about the harms because you're using it and you want to know how to avoid the harms. And this uh, confirmation bias, you know, a lot of these psychiatrists don't treat people with cannabis and they only read the negative studies. They don't read the positive studies. And a lot of them haven't ever used cannabis, frankly. I've been using it since like age 13, uh, which I don't recommend it for teenagers, but I have a lot of lived experience and it makes a big difference if you've tried it. So if you haven't ever treated a patient with it, you've never used it, your patients are afraid to talk to you about it, and you only read the negative studies, how much do you really know about cannabis? So I think the, the people that are anti-cannabis need to start learning about the benefits. I mean, at this point, 94% of Americans support legal access to medical marijuana. About two-thirds of doctors do, but they don't know as much as patients do. It's really embarrassing. And I think we need sort of a quasi-Manhattan Project level uh, educational push to get doctors and nurses up to speed on cannabis. It's much safer if everybody knows about the harms, not just half the people. If everybody knows about the benefits, not just half the people. And if people are communicating with each other, I think communication is a huge part of it. I mean, if someone takes CBD, that's perfectly fine. But you know, there are potential drug interactions. Uh, there are, it can affect your liver tests. Not a big deal if the doctor knows about it, but if he or she doesn't know about it, it can be dangerous. So I'm a huge believer in open communication between doctors and patients, but doctors need to know enough about this to have a sensible discussion. They need to lose a lot of their past attitude, which was, you know, injected straight into their brains from the U.S. government's war on drugs. And with humility, learn a different way to relate to patients about drugs in general, not just cannabis. That would save so many lives and prevent so much misery. I can't even uh, begin to tell you. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the podcast. And it was a truly an honor to have you share your journey and your thoughts and hopefully inspire some of our listeners um, to do some research, uh, read your book. Uh, so I just want to say thanks. Thank you so much. And if people want to reach me to ask questions, they can reach me on my website. It's just petergrinspan.com. And there's a contact me button and I'm happy to answer questions. Cool. Yeah. We'll link on um, that in our show notes under the podcast and uh, like we said, uh, listeners, if you're interested in learning more, check out the show notes, social media, and the links to Dr. Grinspoon's and our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com.